Hey everybody, I'm Tana and you're listening to the Oddity Potity Podcast. As you might have noticed, I'm all about the weirdness. And with Halloween being the weirdest day of the year, I figured I'd do something special for this most hallowed of holidays. History has proven time and time again that we humans do not need a special day to act a fool. We're perfectly capable of being terrible 365 days a year. But when tragedy and terror strike on Halloween, the stories become legend. Today, I present for your listening pleasure, True Tales of Halloween Horror, with an added trigger warning. These stories do contain detailed accounts of death and injury, and some involving children. So, if you're sensitive to that, you may want to skip this one. love Halloween. I have a huge box in the back of my closet with wigs and props and accoutrements for creating ridiculous get-ups at the drop of a hat. I mean, it doesn't really even have to be Halloween. It's just there in case I want to be ridiculous at random. What I'm trying to say is I'm a pro at it, but despite this, my daughter and I still usually battle it out for title of best costume at this contest that our local bar puts on every year. She won last year by dressing as a very ultra-convincing Post Malone. And my Stevie Nicks costume didn't even come close to it, though I did win the year I went as Beth, Dog the Bounty Hunter's wife, R.I.P. Beth. And I should have won the year I went as Willie Nelson because I lost facial skin trying to get that fake beard off at the end of the night, but it was totally worth it. Why do we go through the trouble of getting all gussied up and risking skin and hair loss from wearing cheap makeup and prosthetics in the freezing cold for a handful of stale fun-sized Snickers and bragging rights? Tradition, man! Halloween shenanigans have been going on for more than 2,000 years when the ancient Celtic people of Ireland, France, and the UK celebrated Samhain. That's spelled Samhain, or S-A-M-H-A-I-N, if you want to look it up. The Celtic New Year was on November 1st, so Samhain was like their New Year's Eve. Samhain was also believed to be the one night of the year in which the veil between the living world and the spirit world was the thinnest, and hence the day that was easiest for spirits to cross over from the other side and into our world. So the Celts lit bonfires and dressed as spirits, animals, and other creatures in an effort to ward off evil spirits. After the Roman Empire conquered the Celtic lands, they too adopted some of the traditions of Samhain. In the year 837, Pope Gregory declared November 1st as All Saints Day, and the day before it, October 31st, as All Hallows' Eve which was later morphed into the word Halloween. So Halloween is a centuries-old tradition that was created essentially to keep our world safe from evil spirits, ironically enough, by dressing as evil spirits. And it's all fun and games for the most of us, but for some, evil is inescapable. This brings me to the heart of today's podcast. Truly horrific, evil, and insidious deeds that happen on Halloween night. I picked three especially horrible Halloweens to share all equally gross and disturbing. Let's rip that proverbial band-aid off and dive in. Our first story occurred in 1974 in Deer Park, Texas, and involves the O'Brien family. Ronald, who worked at an optical dispensary and served as a Baptist church deacon, his wife, Daneen, who was a homemaker, and their two children, Timothy, age 8, and Elizabeth, age 5. 
On Halloween night, Ronald took Timothy, Elizabeth, and two of the neighbor children trick-or-treating. It was nasty and rainy out, so the group stayed fairly close to home, hitting up just a couple of streets in a nearby neighborhood. When they came to a house like my house, meaning a house in which no one answered the door, the kids quickly grew annoyed and ran along to the next home, leaving Ronald standing there alone on the porch. This was when the front door suddenly cracked open a few inches, and a man's very hairy arm slid out, and in his very hairy fist, he held out five pixie sticks. Now, for those of you that don't know what a pixie stick is, it's essentially a super long straw filled with flavored sugar. Think like a Virginia Slim 120 filled with cocaine, because pixie sticks basically have that same effect on children. Ronald caught up with the kids and put one pixie stick in each of their candy buckets. And he gave the fifth one to a kid from church who they ran into on their way home. Once they were home, Timothy and Elizabeth, of course, begged to have a piece of candy before bed. Timothy chose the pixie stick, which was the worst choice possible for a bedtime snack because, like I said, pure sugar is kitty cocaine. But Ronald didn't seem bothered by that or by the fact that Timothy could not get the pixie stick open because the top of the two was staple closed. No, Ronald went ahead and pried that staple off, shook the packed sugar loose, and gave his son the candy. If you've ever had a pixie stick, you know how it's done. Bottoms up. You toss that sucker back and you dump the whole thing onto your tongue and let the sweet, sweet sugar melt there. And that's exactly what Timmy did. But what landed on his tongue was not sweet at all. It was bitter. Ronald gave Timothy a cup of Kool-Aid to help him choke that stuff down and wash away the awful taste. And what happened next is the stuff that nightmares are made of. Timothy was immediately gripped with horrible stomach cramps. He stumbled to the bathroom where he began violently vomiting. Ronald rushed to help him, holding his son as the boy's body convulsed. Medics were called, but it was too late. That night, on Halloween of 1974, 8-year-old Timmy O'Brien died on the way to the hospital. Terror rippled through the Deer Park community as Halloween candy was confiscated and turned into the police. Four of the five pixie sticks were recovered, counting Timothy's. And a frenzied hunt ensued for the fifth pixie stick after an autopsy revealed that Timmy's death was caused by poisoning. The pixie stick the little boy had ingested had contained enough cyanide to kill two full-grown adults. The fifth pixie stick was finally found clutched in the hand of the kid from church. He'd fallen asleep trying to remove the stapled enclosure, and lucky for him, he hadn't succeeded. His straw contained enough cyanide to kill four adults. A manhunt for the child murderer ensued. And since the O'Brien crew hadn't ventured too far from home and their route had been contained to just a few streets, it shouldn't have been too hard to track down the killer. However, given that it had been dark and rainy out, and Ronald O'Brien had been in an unfamiliar neighborhood, it took a few tries before he eventually led police to the house in question. Once again, no one answered when they knocked on the door. And this was because the man who lived in the house was an air traffic controller, and he was at work just like he'd been on Halloween night, at the airport, in front of more than 200 witnesses. So who was the hairy-armed stranger who'd been handing out poison candy on Halloween night? Well, it didn't take too much digging for police to discover that Ronald O'Brien was not the squeaky-clean, hard-working, Baptist deaconing, church-bus-driving choir boy he appeared to be. 
In reality, he was drowning in debt, owing more than $100,000 to debtor, which is more than half a million dollars in today's money. In addition, his car was being repossessed and his home was being foreclosed on. This probably had a lot to do with the fact that Ronald could not hold down a job. In the previous 10 years, he'd been fired from or quit 21 jobs, and he was about to be fired from his job selling eyeglasses because his boss suspected that he'd been stealing from the business. To add more shade to this shady McShaderton, in January of 1974, Ronald had taken out a $10,000 supplemental life insurance policy on both Timothy and Elizabeth. And then, one month before the murder in September, he'd taken out an additional $20,000 policy on each child. And finally, just days before Timothy's murder, he'd taken out a third policy on each child for another $20,000 apiece. The total value of these policies added up to today's equivalent of the not terrifying at all dollar amount of $666,000. In 10 months' time, Daddy-O had purchased almost exactly enough life insurance on his children to cover his debts, and with enough left over for a haircut and a shoeshine. So not only was Ronald O'Brien a monster, dude was not sly. He killed his son to pay for his financial mistakes and had hoped to kill his daughter as well. And he'd been totally cool with killing three neighbor kids in an attempt to make the poisonings look random and deflect suspicion from himself. Of course, Ronald maintained that none of this was true and that purchasing these massive insurance policies on his children when he couldn't even pay his mortgage was a total coincidence and he was totally, totally innocent. Completely innocent! Even though the first thing he'd done the next morning, literally hours after Timothy's agonizing death, was call the insurance company to request the payout on his son's life. He insisted that he had nothing to do with it, even after it was discovered that he questioned multiple acquaintances about how much cyanide they thought it would take to kill a person, and where and how one might buy cyanide. Oh, and he'd also visited multiple chemical supply stores to purchase cyanide. He continued to protest his guilt even after his wife, Daneen, testified in court that Timothy had not chosen the pixie stick, that it was actually Ronald who had chosen it for him and had demanded that it was eaten before bedtime. Even after witnesses testified that during Timothy's funeral, Ronald had talked about using the insurance money from his son's death to go on a vacation and buy himself some nice things. Ronald O'Brien continued to try to convince everyone that it was not he, but a hairy-handed stranger who had killed his son. Yeah, a jury didn't buy it either. It took them less than an hour to find Ronald guilty of one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. And it took him about 30 minutes more than that to decide that his butt was a perfect fit for a seat in the electric chair. By the time his lawyers had exhausted the appeals process, Texas had retired the electric chair in favor of lethal injection, which Ronald boohooed as cruel and unusual punishment. That's rich considering the excruciating way he'd murdered his innocent son, but whatever, dude. Ronald O'Brien was a true demon straight from hell who was finally sent back from where he came from on March 31st, 1984. 
His execution was attended by a crowd of more than 300 people who gathered to cheer him on his way out of this world, yelling trick-or-treat and throwing candy. And honestly, I think it was a fitting send-off. My next story is a tragedy that rivals a scene from a Stephen King novel. Only, it really happened. In 1963, the Indiana State Fairgrounds Coliseum in Indianapolis hosted a Holiday on Ice skating exhibition. The opening night was October 31st, Halloween. Despite the holiday, more than 400 people were in attendance. While a full house of spectators enjoyed the show, something terrible, unpredictable, and completely undetectable happened. In the concession area, which had presumably been closed after intermission, sat an old forgotten gas tank. The tank wasn't empty, though, and it began to leak. The unventilated room quickly filled with gas. Also in that room was an electric popcorn popper, presumably still hot from heavy use that night and possibly still plugged in. A few minutes before midnight, the skaters began their grand finale, a number called Mardi Gras. While the performers whirled and flitted into formation on the ice, behind the sealed doors of the concession stand, the compressed gas came into contact with the hot popcorn popper. The gas ignited. Flame exploded 40 feet up through the seats on the south side of the Coliseum, throwing people, chairs, and pieces of concrete into the air. Bodies landed and scattered across the ice, while others disappeared into a smoldering pit that was left by the explosion. A total of 74 people died that night as a result of this accident. The following is a quote from an article in the Indy Star on the tragedy. The full article is linked in the show notes. Quote, Indianapolis news reporter Bill Roberts was attending the show with his wife. He described the scene in graphic detail. For a few seconds, no one cried out. Then there were screams and cries of agony, and the audience jumped from their seats as if in unison and started rushing for the exits. The orchestra continued to play. My wife was drawn to a small blonde girl with her mother. The child's blue coat was soaked with blood. They were looking for the father. Outside the main entrance, a man was sitting with a huge black and blue lump by his left eye. Part of the calf of his left leg was gone. Indianapolis Star reporter Richard R. Roberts reported the events as he saw them. Quote, You walked into a nightmare. This was the worst thing I've seen since combat in World War II. The lights above still cast the bluish light they cast onto the ice show. A red satin slipper lay on the ice. Three feet away was a pool of blood. A gray-haired man lay on his back, staring lifelessly at the ceiling. Ambulance attendances threw a gray blanket across him. Chairs were scattered like tin pins on the south end of the big building. The fairgrounds itself was almost like a battleground. The surrounding streets thick with police and the edges of the street jammed with crowds like war refugees, slowing the movement of ambulances and fire engines. In the aftermath, it was said, quote, Rescuers used the nearby cattle barn as a temporary hospital, and the coroner's office set up a temporary morgue on the ice floor. The dead were placed on plywood and lined up on the ice according to gender and age. Family members who came to identify loved ones had to register at the administration building before being led to the Coliseum. Every hospital in Indianapolis and surrounding counties took on the wounded. Medical and nursing students were utilized. Unquote. 
Today, a plaque hangs in the Coliseum bearing the names of those who were killed in the blast. Now, this story is terrifying to me because besides the, the obvious tragedy of it, it seems so random, so completely out of the blue. It could happen to anyone, anywhere, anytime without warning. And yet, on that very same night, Halloween of 1963, the exact same thing happened 500 miles away in Marietta, Georgia. According to an article first published in the Atlanta Constitution, as the community of Marietta gathered for a Halloween parade downtown, a deadly gas leak was filling the basement of Atherton's drugstore on the downtown square. At the peak of the festivities, with the streets packed and the celebration in full swing, something triggered that gas to explode. Three policemen who were on the square to provide security were standing directly in front of Atherton's drugstore when the windows suddenly exploded. Sergeant Rupert Raines suffered a broken leg and back. Patrolman Wendell Black was paralyzed from the waist down, and Patrolman George Kelly had critical internal injuries and severe cuts to both legs. Rescue teams searched in the rubble for hours, looking for victims and hopefully survivors. The blast was so forceful that it blew out the windows of a jewelry store across the street and, quote, threw debris so high in the air that a child's shoe was found atop a two-story First National Bank building about 50 feet away from the drugstore. After the smoke and dust had cleared, seven people lost their lives that night, and 25 more were severely injured. The mayor at the time, Sam Welch, surveyed the tragic scene from across the street. Quote, His eyes appeared red as he shook his head sadly and told a reporter, I don't know exactly what to say. It is the most horrible tragedy ever to happen in Marietta. Unquote. The people of Indianapolis certainly echoed that same sentiment that night. And while it wasn't a ghost, both cities were victims of an invisible killer that would haunt Halloween for decades to come. Our last story took place during trick-or-treat season of 2012 in New Soliki Township, Pennsylvania. If I butchered the name New Soliki and anyone listening is a New Solikian, please let me know how to pronounce it correctly. Anyway, what happened in this little town honestly sounds like something that could easily have happened to me growing up, or really even now. A nine-year-old girl whose name was not released because she was a minor at the time was dressed up in a costume that included a black hat and a white feather sticking out of it. At around 10 p.m., she was enjoying a Halloween family bonfire on a hillside when one of the neighbors, who also happened to be the girl's cousin, spotted her and mistook her for a skunk. Now, I don't know what kind of skunks are growing in Pennsylvania, but around here they don't get much bigger than a huge cat or maybe a very small dog at best. The average height and weight of a nine-year-old girl is about four and a half feet tall and 62 pounds. Literally, the only thing this kid and a skunk had in common was that they were both wearing all black and had a white stripe. Nevertheless, the cousin, Thomas Grant, grabbed his shotgun, and his mother, Janet Grant, shined a flashlight on the girl while he took aim. Apparently, even lit up, the girl still looked enough like a skunk to Thomas for him to fire multiple times on her, striking her in the shoulder and abdomen. Thankfully, this was well before the coronavirus pandemic, and the girl was able to be airlifted to Pittsburgh Children's Hospital 30 miles away, where she quickly underwent emergency surgery. 
The most recent articles I could find on the incident had listed the girl in critical condition at the time, and I could not find any follow-ups related to her death or charges against the shooter for it, so I'm going to assume the best and presume that this poor girl pulled through it. Thomas Grant swears that he was not under the influence at the time, and the local sheriff backs this story up. But honestly, being UI would at least explain the complete non-sensory of his ridiculous actions. I guess the moral of the story is, if you're going to dress up and be outside for Halloween, don't dress as anything even remotely like an animal, especially if you live in the backwoods and have crazy neighbors. Whew, okay, well, that was some heavy storytelling. I think we need a palate cleanser before I sign off. Now dust off that old Willie Nelson costume and dare to do some candy prospecting. I mentioned at the start of the podcast that Halloween as we know it today is sort of a mishmash of traditions from multiple religions and time periods. What rituals survived mainly focused on the dead and specifically keeping them out of our faces. But did you know that at one time Halloween included ceremonies that were intended to predict the future? most of which were focused on what is one of my greatest fears. <coughs> Marriage. <sighs> it was a different time, though, so I'll try to cut the snark. Since our foremothers were not allowed to hold jobs, have bank accounts, or pretty much have any worldly possessions of their own, finding a husband was not so much a matter of love as it was survival. It truly was a critical matter. So arose, on Halloween, Rituals intended to reassure young women that they would, in fact, find a husband by the following Halloween. Sometimes competitions were held like bobbing for apples or hunting for chestnut burrs, and the winner was declared to be the first to marry the next year. Other times, food was involved. In the 1700s, Irish cooks would bury rings and mashed potatoes, and the lucky woman who didn't choke to death on it was guaranteed to find true love. In Scotland, Women wrote the name of their suitors on hazelnuts and threw them into a fire. If the nut exploded or popped and didn't blind them or kill them, it was still bad news because it meant the love was doomed. But if the nut burned to ashes, it meant that the love would last forever and the man was a good candidate for a future husband. In further hazelnut lore, it was also said that if a woman ate candies made from hazelnuts, walnuts, and nutmeg on Halloween, she would dream of her future husband that night. Oh, I like these candy stories. Some less tasty and more bizarre rituals included women throwing apple peels over their shoulders in hopes that the peel would magically form the initials of their future husband. But it seems like guys with the initials of S and L would kind of have an unfair advantage there. And lastly, in a move that you would never, ever, ever catch me making, a woman would stand in a darkened room in front of a mirror while holding a candle. As they gazed into their reflection... They hope to see their husband's face appear behind their shoulder. I mean, I feel like this might have been how Candyman was first summoned, and I don't really want to blame that on our ancestors, but it really sounds like they're to blame. <sighs> well, guys, I've destroyed two-thirds of a bag of Halloween candy while recording this, so I'd best sign off now. I hope y'all have a wonderfully scary Halloween night, and I hope you'll join me next week for another episode of Oddity Potity. See y'all soon. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Thanks for listening. Your support means so much. It's everything. If you haven't already, please go follow us on Instagram at Oddity Potity Podcast. And if you want to be the most helpfulest, please go leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if there's something weird or creepy or strange that you'd like me to investigate and report back to you on, drop me an email at oddityproddity at gmail.com. That's O-D-D-I-T-Y-P-O-D-D-I-T-Y at gmail.com. See y'all next time.